Thank you, Alan. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you open up to the book of Acts. I know we're doing our study through Romans, but we've taken just a, a few uh, weeks out here in July and kind of examining uh, some themes and some ideas that are presented, some words that are talked about within the book of Romans. And I want to just kind of spend some time helping us understand and examine those before we really get into them and the discussion that he's going to have in Romans. But open up the book of Acts, chapter 5 is where we're going to uh, take our, our study out of today. George Washington was placed on the $1 bill, uh, and I think really for a good reason. Um, he, was, he was a champion of the Revolutionary War. He's uh, a great leader in our American history. Uh, he, he's, he's already been called the father of our country. Matter of fact, he was called the father of our country even during his lifetime which just amazes me that some of the people around him would recognize his leadership quality and they would even bestow upon him that name as this country was being uh, created. Now at his funeral, he was eulogized as being the first in war, first in peace, and first in the hearts of his countrymen. So we often treat his history as something that is an amazing thing of what he was able to accomplish in America. And as a hero of our nation, his views are especially important. His deep commitment to, I'm going to use this word, providence of God is very evident in a lot of his writings. If you want to go through and, and, and pull out some of his writings, you'll discover a lot of different things that he says. He will often use this word providence. Sometimes he will capitalize it, or sometimes it'll be lowercase, depending on the way he's using it. When he speaks of providence with a capital P, he's talking about God and how God has been particularly involved in his life and in the founding of this nation. And so it's important that we kind of read some of the things that he has said. Washington's earliest dramatic experience of God's providential pr protection took place during General Braddock's defeat of the Battle of Monongahela in, in, uh, near northern what is called Pittsburgh today, back in, in 1755. Now, following this battle at Monongahela, he writes to his brother John Washington and, and on July 18th in 1755. And this is what he says in his letter to his brother. But by the all-powerful dispensations of providence, I have been protected beyond all human possibility, probability or expectation. For I had four bullets through my coat and two horses shot under me, yet escaped unhurt, although death was leveling my companions on every side of me. I mean, it's a remarkable story that he has to say. It's, it's then prompted a, a colonial Presbyterian preacher who, who was uh, Reverend Samuel Davies of, of Virginia. Later, Davies becomes the president of Princeton in New Jersey. And so he writes a sermon, and this is the title of his sermon, Religion and Patriotism, the Constituents of a Good Soldier. Religion and patriotism, the constituents of a good soldier. And he says in this sermon, he says, I cannot but hope providence has hitherto preserved him in so signal a manner for some important service 
to his country. Now, he writes this before George Washington becomes president. And he is saying that God has been involved, the providence of God has been able to to maneuver things to eventually put George Washington into a position of prominence in history, is what he's saying, for this country. Moreover, Washington's grandson then relates this astounding story of how he had a conversation with the Indians who were there at Monongahela, and they talked about that they were literally shooting him, but yet there was some angel that was protecting him during that time. It's an amazing story of providence. Consistent with Washington's early experience of God and his providential aid in that battle, he writes these words on August 20th, 1778, as the commander-in-chief now of the Revolutionary War, referring to some of the recent instances of divine intervention during the War of Independence. He writes this as he's writing to Brigadier General Nelson, describing himself as a man of faith and a preacher of providence. This is what he has to say. He says, The hand of providence has been conspicuous in all this, that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. But... It will be time enough for me to turn preacher when my present appointment ceases, and therefore I shall add no more on the doctrine of providence. So when he's writing to Brigadier General, he's saying, you have to understand, as a soldier, we have to live by faith, and we have to acknowledge that God has been in control of our protection in all of this. He says, otherwise, we're really just, we're we're infidels in all this. We have an obligation to expound upon God's involvement in our lives and protection for us. During his first inaugural address, George Washington makes this declaration. He says, no people can be bound to acknowledge and adore the invisible hand which conducts the affairs of men more than the people of the United States. He says, every step by which they have advanced to the character of an independent nation seems to have been distinguished by some token of providential agency. He goes on and he says, we ought to be no less persuaded that the propitious smiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right. Order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. You catch this? At the beginning of this nation, which now we really don't classify ourselves as a Christian nation, this man whom we adore and we call the father of this nation is telling us the only way this nation came about is because of the hand of God providentially working within the lives and within the warfare of things that were going on to make this a great nation. How dare we ever forget that, he says. Benjamin Franklin, as he is writing, uh, uh, preparing a a speech on his uh, Constitutional Convention address on prayer on June 28, 1787, he says this, I have lived, sir, a long time. Matter of fact, he was 81 years old when he writes this. And the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men. Now, I realize we've been told that our founding fathers were deists, 
and they weren't Christians. But when I read things like this, this goes against the aspect of what a deist really is, because a deist is one who believes that there is a God, but he set this world in motion, he turned it and started spinning it, and then he walks away and allows it to do its own thing, and he no longer has any involvement in it at all. But what we're reading from George Washington, what we're reading from Benjamin Franklin, and I can go on and on and on about our founding fathers, is this. God is involved not only in this world, not only in this nation, but personally in the lives of people who will put their faith and trust in Him. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul is going to give us a glimpse of this philosophy of God's providence, not only in the United States, but in history as a whole. How has God been involved? And so he's going to lay all of this out in Romans 9 through 11. All right? To Paul, history is an arena where God is playing out his purposes with men and nations and bringing everything into focus on the goal that he had in mind even before creation itself was wrought about. He created the world, and in 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to see some of the, his other thoughts on this as well, knowing how all was subjected to vanity because of Adam's sin, and how all will be restored to a pristine condition because of the one man, Adam, Jesus, who brings righteousness and holiness and redemption, which we've talked about. It all involves a personal interaction with our Creator and man. Peter is going to even acknowledge that in his sermon in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28, he says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And Peter says in another place there, in, in, in Acts chapter 2, verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even in this, God is using men to help fulfill his plan for things. His providential work in history brought Jesus into this world at the right time, and he even somehow manipulated the men such as Herod and Pilate that would enable him to be crucified on a cross. We know that he also hardened Pharaoh's heart when Moses was coming to say, let my people go. We see God's interaction in, in history just unfolding all the time. So what does it look like to have God control our lives? It's providence. Now, I want to take a little bit of a look at this word providence. Why was the English word providence used to describe God's interaction in history and in man? to capture these biblical teaching of, of, of God's working within in things. Now, in, in reference to God, you're never going to find this word providence really in the Bible itself, in most translations. It, it might appear in a couple, but the idea of God's interaction, this providence, is everywhere in Scripture. So let's look at these words a little bit. Kind of dig into the etymology of it. The word providence, it's constructed by two words, 
and, and it's brought together. It, it comes from the root word to provide. Now, if we take that word apart, and, and it's these two different words, pro, which means to, to, to forward or to be on, on behalf of, and vider, which means to see. So we put those two words together, and the word provide should mean to see forward, right? Or to see on behalf of something. But how do we get this aspect of to see forward, to look in the future, to where we're talking about God providing? All right? it, it, it means, really, if we're to look it up, Providence means to supply what is needed or to give sustenance or support. So in, in reference to God, the noun providence has come to mean the act of purposefully providing for or sustaining and governing the world. So we ask ourselves, why is that word used in this way? How can they change it from what its root words actually mean? I think it comes down to this. It's an interesting reasoning behind it. One is based on, on what we would call an English idiom. It's our, it's our grammar. It's the way in which we speak, all right? We have this English idiom that kind of goes like this. Someone says, uh, John, will you, will you go take care of this? And I'll say, yeah, I'll see to it. I'll see to it. What does I'll see to it mean? That's providence, to provide. I will see that it takes place. Um, as a matter of fact, it, it's more than just what we say, I'll see to it. In our current understanding, it means that I'll take care of it, which also is another idiom. But y you see what's happening here? I'll provide, I'll see to it, I'll make sure that it happens, so that when we put this word in Latin, vidir, which means to see, together with the word pro, which means to, to, to go towards something, Sometimes we would think it would be to foresee, but within our knowledge, if God is seeing that something happens, He's going to see to it that things are arranged properly. He'll take care of these things. So providence, in essence, is this. It is God seeing that we have needs and taking care of those needs to fulfill His purposes in our lives. That's the providence of God. So I want us now to go into the book of Acts and look at a story of something that happens here. And we can look at how God is interacting in the lives of these men in his providence to bring about ultimately what he wants. But they don't see it until they look back at it. All right. So the first thing, if you want to open up your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5, we're going to start at verse 17 and we're going to read down through verse 25. Verse 17 begins with this. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. Now, when the high priest came and, and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them, the apostles, brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, 
So they returned and they reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the door, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, now when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And when someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. I mean, let's just review a little bit as, as we kind of build to this story, okay? What's happened here is, as you may recall, that something similar to this took place just a little earlier in the book of Acts. Back in Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, they healed a crippled beggar there at the temple at the gate called Beautiful. And when Peter began to explain to the crowd that, that they had healed the cripple in the power and in the name of Jesus, Jesus had just been crucified he had been buried, and now they're proclaiming that he is alive and he is giving them power to heal people such as this man. In Acts chapter 4, the Sadducees then, they go and they arrest Peter and John, and they put them in prison, and they, and they, they speak to them overnight, and, and they know that somehow these people who had at one point been shouting, Hosanna! just a few months back, proclaiming Jesus to be king, they had convinced them to change their shouting from Hosanna to crucify him within the scope of less than a week. All right? Peter and John now are preaching and healing and making them think that this is because of Jesus. The Sanhedrins and the priests, they don't want this kind of going around anyway, so they are trying to squelch it as fast as they can. And so after they had arrested Peter and John, they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. You just can't do that. And so they sent them back out. And as soon as Peter and John were released, they went right back to the church and they told them what had happened and they went back out into the streets and into the temple and they began to courageously and boldly proclaim the message about Jesus and his resurrection. And now we see that Peter and John and the other apostles have been arrested again, which brings us into chapter 5. Now, if we try to see this from the Sadducees' perspective... This person, Jesus, had come into their territory and he was trying to tell the people that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law had been misguided and were actually lying to you and deceiving you and teaching you wrong. So people began to follow Jesus and he was drawing very large crowds. Thousands of people would come to listen to him, and they would follow him all over the regions as he would speak. Now, as they, as they have convinced these people to crucify Jesus, they thought they had succeeded in getting rid of him. The problem is, he keeps coming back. And now his followers, they're getting the same results. As they stand and as they preach... Thousands are coming and listening, and they're saying the same thing, that there is a new king in town, and his name is Jesus, and he is God Almighty, and that he is the one who has the power and authority to not only heal and forgive sins, but to give you eternal life. So 
Back in Acts 4, they hauled Peter and John, and they reminded them that they had crucified Jesus. And basically, you better stop it, or you, you, know, you don't know what might happen to you as well. Acts 4.33 then tells us, And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, if you jump into chapter 5, verse 12, we discover that many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico, which is up on the temple. Acts 5, 14 and 15 says, and more, than every, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that if Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. You catch what's happening here? The people have discovered there's something unique about this message that these men are now sharing there in the temple. So they're bringing people who are sick, people who are injured, people who they have to carry in on cots. And all they're hoping is as Peter goes to the temple to speak or to pray or whatever he's going to do that day, maybe his shadow might fall on them and by the power of Christ they would be healed. The Sadducees can see that the disciples are not listening to them. And they're speaking more and more, and their boldness is getting stronger. And people are now flocking to them, just like they did with Jesus. We can see why in Acts 5.17 it says, But the high priest rose up, and all were who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy see it's not about the message to them now it's about you're taking my students away you're, you're taking my livelihood away because the students would come and they would pay them to to teach them and now they're leaving us and and you're you're getting more followers than what I've got so jealousy is rising up within these uh, these men so as a result of jealousy many a man becomes a fool doesn't he they're no different. So it come, should come as no surprise that they threw Peter and John in jail again. But we also need to look at this from God's perspective as well, not just from the Sanhedrin. See, God had predicted Jesus' death. And he's been doing that for centuries. It's all a part of the story that was part of God's plan. Even though it's a very painful part of God's plan... It was part of his plan. But then, of course, part of his plan was that he would raise Jesus back up to life again. The disciples, they did exactly what Jesus had told them to do. They returned to Jerusalem, and they, they waited there for him to send his Holy Spirit. And once the Spirit was received, they began to then preach, and the church doors flew wide open. And they continued day after day sharing with anybody who would have ears to listen the story of what Jesus has done in this world to bring redemption to us all. Matter of fact, he enabled them to speak in other languages. And 3,000 men were baptized that day. Peter and John got arrested, were told not to speak. So now God bends down. And what happens is once they were in, they'd been released from the prison, they went back to the church. And while they were telling the church what had happened, 
from their first arrest, and they're in a prayer meeting, God shows up in a really unique way, and he shakes the building in which they're in. In other words, I hear you. I know what's going on. I got your back. God is involved in his providential care for his people in all these things. So we come to our text this morning in Acts 5. And, 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 and we see that the Sadducees have arrested the apostles. They put them in jail. And, and God has already made it clear whose side he's on. So now he's going to mess with the Sadducees a little bit more. I would have loved to have been there that day. Would you not have just enjoyed that? I mean, you know, think about it. You, you've, you've captured these guys. You've put them in, in public prison, not just in your own little uh, prison there at the, at the high priest place, but you've got them under some Roman guard. And, and all of a sudden, God steps in through an angel, and he takes them out of there in the middle of the night, and they have no clue that they've been released. And so when they head back in and they say, go get the prisoners, and, and they send their officers of the court to go get them, they're not there. The soldiers are there guarding it. The door to the prison is locked, but there's no one inside. And while they're arguing about what has gone on, somebody runs up and says, hey, they're at the temple. They're back there teaching and preaching again. I mean, can you just sense God's humor in this? You think you can stop this. Let me show you what I can do. You see, don't ever try to tell God that he can't do something. This is a part of his plan. The second thing we see in, in providence is this. We see divine leading. Verse 26 through 32 Then the captain, with the officers, went and brought them. They went to the temple. They went and got the guys. And they brought them, but not by force. All right? Let's just throw that out there. But not by force, for they're afraid that they would be stoned by the people. All right? And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, Now we strictly charge you not to teach in his name yet. Here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? But Peter and the apostles, they answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. And God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, now after God had played this little game with the Sanhedrin, God provides these men the right words to speak when they're questioned by the high priest. All right? I mean, did you hear what they said, you know? You think about this. Are we supposed to obey God or are we supposed to obey you? Well, that's a good question, isn't it? All right? So, you know, from a, from a human perspective, the apostles, they, they were in a lot of trouble. They had been arrested and they'd been told not to do it. They do it again. They get arrested. 
And then they somehow, you know, mis- escape. And, and now they're arrested again. They're, well, maybe or they're, it's come before, you know, the council. Um, they keep doing what they're told not to do. Now, you can imagine many people would might be a little frightened in this situation unless they realized that God's got their back, all right, that he's taking care of it. He's going to see to it that they're okay. And he provides for them in this way. So God steps in again. He gives the apostles the right words to speak through the Holy Spirit. And the high priest, he says, Now we strictly charge you not to teach or preach in his name. And yet here you fill Jerusalem with your, with your teaching. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, you're trying to charge us with his death? Telling us that we're murderers? But the apostles basically said, Well, we told you that we're going to obey God rather than you. I mean, that's just that's what we're going to do. Whether you like it or not, God did raise Jesus from the dead. And you are the ones who killed him. <laughs> you know, it's, it's obvious that this is what's happened. And now God has exalted Jesus and has placed him at the right hand, giving him all authority and all power in heaven. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And we cannot stop teaching about him to anybody. And not only that, but his Holy Spirit is now working in our lives to demonstrate that he is alive you see, God divinely led the apostles with the ability to communicate back to these, those that were in authority. What are they going to do? What are we going to do at this time? Let's move on. He's going to give us now His divine protection. And this is in, in Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him, right? But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, he's a teacher of law held in honor by all the people. He stood up and he gave orders, uh, put the men outside for a little while. And then he said to the rest of this Sanhedrin, men of Israel, Take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, proclaiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So, in the present case... I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you'll not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them, and they charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. Did you catch verse 33 there at the beginning of that passage? He says, when they heard this, they were enraged, and they wanted to kill him. 
their tempers are flaring. Now remember, they just brought them in, but they didn't do anything. They didn't even really publicly arrest them because they were afraid what the people might do to them if they, they did. They thought the people might stone them. And, 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 but yet they are so angry, they want to kill him. It reminds me of how they treated Jesus, doesn't it? Take you back to there as well. I mean, they hated him. And they were trying to find an opportunity when the people weren't looking because they were afraid what the people might do if they arrested and if they did anything to Jesus, but they wanted to kill him. So they plotted and they schemed. The same thing is going on right now with Peter and John and James and all the other apostles. They are tired of their, their interruption of their lives. And they can't get them to stop talking about Jesus. So they're angry. Now, it should be no surprise that the Sanhedrin is furious. You see, because Jesus came into their territory uninvited, and he started preaching and teaching in their territory and stealing many of their converts, and they finally convinced the people to crucify him, and they thought they're back in power, and they're not. But then here come these disciples. They're preaching and teaching the same garbage that Jesus was, and the people are following them and going away from their teaching. They are enraged. Their jealousy has now got them so where they're so angry they want to kill these men. You see, they have a lot of political power. But putting the apostles to death, they were afraid of what might happen. And so they didn't do that. You see, so they're getting right in their faces and they're making accusations against the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin doesn't know what to do. So they beat him again. And they tell him, okay, we're going to keep doing this. You've got to stop. Don't be speaking about him anymore. And they set him free. Todd... Cogette, who was the minister at Somerset Christian Church in Greencastle, Indiana, a few years back, he tells a story. He says he went to the prayer center, which is there in, in Greencastle, and he was studying and praying over this text in, in Book of Acts. And he happened to look out the window. And as he was looking out the window, he says, the, the people who lived there at the prayer center, they had uh, two dogs. He says, now, they're very nice. They're friendly dogs to everybody. You know, and, and but there was a neighbor's dog who came into their yard and he began marking his territory. Uh, these two dogs, they were a little bit smaller than this big dog, so they were kind of afraid about what they were going to do. You know, they probably wanted to go and, and, and fight him, but they kind of just moved around and watched him. And, 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 and instead of attacking this, this neighbor's dog who was claiming new territory, they went back around and they tried to reclaim their own territory by marking as well. All right, and, and, and this is, this is, he says, when I'm looking at all of this, he says, this is exactly what the Sanhedrin is doing. They think, this is my territory. Jesus comes in, and he's marked up the territory, and, and now they're trying to get their territory back and saying, this is ours. When in, in fact, it is his, and there's nothing that they're going to do that's going to change that. Their jealousy is creating all this problem for them. But then there is this man who's a part of this ruling body in Israel, and he's a teacher. 
Matter of fact, he's a profound teacher, and he still is recognized to this day as one of the greatest teachers in Israel's history. A man by the name of Gamaliel. Gamaliel was Paul the Apostle's teacher. All right? Gamaliel says, hey, hang on, guys. He's also a student of history. He says, you remember a while back there was a gentleman by the name of Thutis who came in who thought himself to be the Messiah, and he raised up a group of people, about 400 men, and, and, and when he was killed, uh, they all just kind of left. They scattered. And then there was another guy from Judea, or from the Galilee, by the name of Judas, and, and he also had a great following, and he thought he was the Messiah. And, and, and you know, once he was put to death, you know, all of his disciples, they scattered too. He says, leave this guy alone, all right? Because if this Jesus is just a man, his disciples, they're going to disappear. But if he really was Messiah, if he really is the Son of God, there's nothing you're going to do about it. And the only thing you're going to discover yourself is that you become the enemy of God and you're opposing what God is doing. So why don't you just sit back and watch and let's see what happens. I mean, Gamaliel hit the nail right on the head. You know, it's exactly what the Sanhedrin was doing. They were fighting against God and His providence in their lives at that time. So not only was God interrupting the Sanhedrin's plan, not only was he, was he divinely leading the apostles, he, he, was, he was also divinely protecting the apostles. But what did the Sanhedrin do in response to Gamaliel's invo uh, his <clears throat> advice? They kind of ride the fence. They don't know what to do. So they beat the boys and they say, shh, no more. And they let them go. The final thing that I think is, is this when we deal with providence. It deals with divine privilege. Verse 41 to 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. It doesn't stop them. They're emboldened, and now they have God's special privilege to be able to do whatever they want. So they go back to the temple every day, and they're teaching there. And they don't just stop at the temple. Now they start going house to house, sharing the message about who Jesus is, that He is the Christ. That's what providence is all about. And so they're celebrating, they're rejoicing. Can you imagine what it would have been like? They were just beaten. They have been imprisoned. They have come before the ruling body that can send them away for life imprisonment or even to recommend execution. And when they were beaten, it probably wasn't just a slap on the hand. And they're celebrating. And they're, they're excited that they got beat because they're associated with Jesus. Isn't that great? 
How many of you got beaten because you've been related to Jesus somehow? These men are celebrating this fact. I mean, they could have gotten pretty upset with God for allowing them to be, one, arrested, two, you know, beaten, and just interrupted. You've told us to do this, and now you're letting all this happen? Well, catch all the things. And God is taking care of them through all of this. Do you think they would stop speaking about Jesus now? Every day. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming that the Christ is Jesus. These men, to their death, would never stop teaching and proclaiming that the Christ is Jesus. And they celebrated any opposition that came against him. You know, did you notice that not only did they not stop teaching about Jesus, but they went right back into the temple courts, and they did it. I pray that we repent of our unbelief, and we pray for boldness to go right back into the places that we're told not to go. You're told you can't go pray in school. You're told you can't even have a prayer in, 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 in the court system and the Ten Commandments. Take them off the wall. We're told that we can't go into Congress and do these things. We're told you can't do this in business. You can't do this on public property. I pray that we have boldness to never stop preaching about Jesus. I pray that even when we are arrested and we're pray, for praying in these places and, and teaching about Jesus, that we won't stop. I pray that even if we're beaten about talking about Jesus in public, that we will never stop. I pray that if, if, if we're put to death for preaching about Jesus, we will never stop. The church needs to be bold. Instead, we have become silent. I pray that we repent of our private, silent Keep it to yourself, Christianity. And that we have the, the willingness to stand up and boldly proclaim who He is and what He does, no matter whose territory we are infringing upon. The disciples weren't just dealing with people. They were dealing with their government. All right? They were dealing with religious leaders. Sadly, there are too many Christians today who aren't even allowed to talk about things that are biblical even in their own churches because it infringes upon people's beliefs and their own territories of their own opinions. But I pray we never stop talking about Jesus, even if our religious leaders are against it. May it be said of us that day after day, we are the ones who go out into the public places and that we go house to house and we share the good news that Jesus is the Christ, that He is the Son of God. Jesus is alive. He is our Savior. And His interaction with us today and His providential care continues on. It doesn't just happen 
in the Bible. It didn't just happen with George Washington. It happens in your life if you will stop and look. God can use you to change our world today to make it a better place if you're willing to be used by Him. I don't know about you, but I want to have God's providence in my life and His sovereignty in my life. And just like people like George Washington and Benjamin Franklin and Gamaliel who understood something has to be happening here. Maybe God really is involved in this. If He is, I don't want to be opposing Him. I want God to do unbelievable things with me, to confound his enemies and to interrupt their plans. I want God to, to, to give me the words to speak when I'm asked. I want God to be able to, to protect me and my family. I want him to lead me, and, and I want to have the privilege of being his servant, no matter what. How about you? Wouldn't you like to recognize the hand of God in your life? To know that, that He is using you and setting you up for something great down the road. He is. If you're willing to acknowledge Him. Let's pray. Father, we know that you have been active in this world throughout all history. We read stories in the Old Testament of your involvement and your, your provision and providence in their lives. We, we see how you have used nations and, 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 and individuals, kings and queens and, and, and father shepherd boys. We, we see how you were able to use your angelic powers to send them into this world to, to take people out of prison in the middle of the night, unknown. You have shaken the foundation upon which we stand time and time again. Father, help us to acknowledge, to see your work in our lives and to know that, Father, you can do wonderful things and you are doing wonderful things. Your word tells us that you are working together all things for the good, for those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. Father, we love you. That's in Jesus' name. Amen.